0: Welcome back to The Heart Podcast, everyone. This is episode two, and we're very excited that you're joining us. In today's episode, we'll be focusing on how anti-racist teaching practices are incorporated in the fields of STEM. We would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which we gather is the territory of the Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Scaticoke, Golden Hill Paw and Nipmuc peoples, who have stewarded this land throughout the generations.
1: Gracias, Omar. Before we get into the conversation, let me tell you a little bit more about our guest today. Dr. Stephanie Santos is an assistant professor in residence and associate director of the Engineering Diversity and Outreach Center in the School of Engineering at the University of Connecticut. She focuses her research on cartilage biomechanics as well as engineering leadership and equity. Dr. Nicole Joseph is an assistant professor of mathematics and science education in the Peabody College at Vanderbilt University. Her research focuses on black women and girls, their identity development, and their experiences in mathematics. Dr. Joseph also examines how whiteness and white supremacy operates to shape the experiences of black women and girls in mathematics. Also with us is Dr. Luis Leiva, who is also at the Peabody College at Vanderbilt University. Dr. Leiva is an assistant professor of mathematics education and an affiliate faculty in the Women and Gender Studies program at Vanderbilt. His research examines historically marginalized students' narratives relative to their experiences in engineering, computing, mathematical science majors, and more. Through this work, he focuses on revealing how interlocking systems of power shape the experiences of undergraduate STEM education across intersections of identity. I am so pleased for Omar and I to be in conversation with the three of you. I know that we're going to learn so much from you and grow as educators as a result. To get us started, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what anti-racist teaching means to you. Luis, what's your perspective on that?
2: So anti-racist teaching for me, so my uh, main responsibility with teaching is leading some of the graduate seminars that we have in our department. I teach in the Department of Teaching and Learning um, at Vanderbilt University. And some of the seminars I teach, for example, are um, titled Power and Identity in STEM is one that I recently taught. I also taught one called diversity and equity in STEM classrooms. And I think that one of the things that I do at the very beginning of the semester, and I share this practice as well with Dr. Joseph, is to co-construct norms at the beginning of our classes. And we do this because we have to attend to understanding that we're all coming from different perspectives around some of the issues that we're gonna be talking about, whether it's around social justice or on identity, Um, and also being able to create a space where we can comfortably begin to um, hear, but also comfortably disagree uh, on certain perspectives. And I think that while we're doing some of that, we're also at the same time grappling with um, some of the ways that we've kind of internalized forms of racism and other forms of isms. And so for example, if you disagree um, and and you wanna feel comfortable in a space to be able to disagree, without pushing back on the ways that we're reading people in racialized and gendered ways, everybody's not gonna have an equal opportunity to disagree or to process or to push back on. So for example, through an intersectional lens, if we think about intersectional tropes about women of color, right? So being like a sassy Latina or being the angry black woman, if you begin to disagree in a space and you haven't co-constructed norms around engagement, It could easily become a racialized and gendered blowback for women of color to be able to be positioned as you're being angry or you're being sassy towards me and so we start to reify those double standards of participation and so co-constructing norms is really important at the beginning of my courses to be able to really do some of the unlearning and the de internalizing um, of how we've been complicit with all of these different systems in society I think that you know, if we think about how, you know, it's, it's gonna vary. So if students are coming into the class and they're they're a STEM student where these this kind of practice is like considered not necessary, right? Because we've constructed STEM disciplines like mathematics to be socially neutral or culturalist, they think about it and say, Well, I've never done this in any of my classes, right? So there's already a shift of their experience that's happening, being in a social science classroom space and being in a social science classroom space where we're talking about issues of equity and social justice. And so I think that there's there could be that reaction. There could be a reaction where students have seen something like this. Maybe in their undergraduate years, they were um, a women's and gender studies major, right? And maybe that was a norm. So I think what I'm saying in my response is that in higher education, we've almost kind of siloed or compartmentalized ways in which certain disciplines really affirm and make visible the humanities of individuals and other disciplines where those humanities are lost by our pedagogical practices. And so I think that the variation that I see when I'm teaching with the graduate students in my department can also be a function of how higher education has socialized students in different ways.
1: Wow, that's just powerful right there. I mean, really, really powerful, especially in this conversation where we're talking about STEM, which tends to be an area where that aspect that you're speaking about regarding the humanity, you know, of the work can sometimes get lost. I really appreciate what you just shared about that. What if, Nicole, it's, Luis gave you a shout out there in terms of those uh, constructing and co-constructing those norms. What are your thoughts about how anti-racism shows up or and what does it mean for you, for anti-racist teaching?
3: Yeah, thanks, um, Dr. Leva. I agree about the norms. And I think that students who are rarely seen in classrooms, so racialized, gendered, um, uh, minority students, they really appreciate that type of process, because they get to participate and give voice to so what is important to them as we begin to, you know, engage in whatever the content um, is. Um, one assignment that I have given my students there's a class that I teach called the Centrality of Race in STEM, and it definitely starts with like historical artifacts, looking at all the way back to pseudoscience, you know, talking about, you know, how this country was really based off of racism, right? And so how do we go all the way to the beginning to really help us understand what is happening actually in 2021, right? But one of the assignments they have to do is sort of an autobiography of like their own lived experiences And that assignment is super powerful because I tell people to go all the way back to when you were like in kindergarten, try to remember who did you go to school with? Who were your friends? Who were your teachers? What types of activities did you engage in? And so what happens is they have to deconstruct that and do an analysis around that. And of course I give them questions. The first question is, How do you know that you are, and you can fill in any social identity. So how do you know that you are white? How do you know that you are lesbian? How do you know that you are transgender? How do you know these things? And then um, students actually come to really like their own sort of aha moments, rather than me having to like point out that, you know, certain perspectives are what I would call raggedy, right? So, I've had white students say to me, No wonder I have thought negatively about, you know, let's just say black males, because I grew up around white people with wealth. Everybody else had wealth, they were all white. I went to private institutions. What I saw on the news is basically what I knew. And I didn't begin to deconstruct or understand any of this until I got to college, right? So, that's a powerful um, assignment that does a lot of the work for me, right? And students are taking ownership of that because they're, you know, I'm, I'm making it an intellectual exercise. Like they're doing all of the interrogating and the analysis, and they see, you know, maybe perhaps why they have certain perspectives. And that is key because once they understand that they hold assumptions and biases and all these kinds of things, If they want to do the work, um, they'll do it. And they'll begin sort of this journey of trying to learn how to be, you know, not just anti-racist, but, you know, thinking about other intersections as well.
1: Right, right, in terms of taking an equity approach in in, in STEM and in math um, in particular. I'm curious about, I I have to ask you two things. It sounds like a really powerful assignment. And I'm wondering if, um, Nicole, you could speak to how you connect it, like after students have engaged in a type of assignment, how do you work to connect it to the subject matter of STEM, to the subject matter of math education? Like, what does that look like, um, either through that assignment or subsequent work that you do with the students? And secondly, you said something really powerful at the end, which was, okay, so, so if students wanna dig in, they, they have like that foundation to do so. What do you do with the ones who do the assignment and don't want to dig in?
3: Then I tell them that education is not the place for you. Whether you are training, so these are graduate students, PhD students, and master's students generally. And most of the people in our PhD program are training for the professorate. So we, we talk about, you know, what does it mean to um, integrate the personal and the political when it comes to your research? You know, and we talk about how it's, you know, it's, it's not a good thing, and it's definitely not tied to an agenda of liberation. When your research is over there, you're getting grants, you're winning money off of the backs of Black and brown children or students, and yet your life, the way you live it, is, you know, polar opposite. You don't have any Black friends. You don't engage in communities of color. You're not connected to other scholars of color where you are trying to be in discourse to keep yourselves, you know, checks and balances. So that's like one thing. Um, But the other thing is that I I just did a workshop at the Racial Justice with Dr. Rich, Rich Milner, where I talk about what I often call pre work. I don't think anybody can do anti-racist education until they have done the pre-work. I don't think scholars and just regular folks can do anti-racist teaching and education in an authentic, deep and transformative way until you yourself have engaged in the interrogation, right? So teachers, and we, you know, we, I don't know if you guys do there, but if you guys have a teacher education program, but we also have a teacher education program at Vanderbilt. And so it's like, they want strategies. They want things that they can do Monday. And I get it because I was a K-12 teacher and a math coach. So I get that, but this is lifelong work, anti-racism and learning how to do that intersectionally Is going to take you the rest of your life, and you've got to be willing to engage yourself through, um, you know, these types of projects, you know, these types of intersectional anti racist projects before you can really understand. And so, that's how I use that assignment like, they have to understand who they are first, right? And, um, once you understand who you are, your role, your privilege then you can begin to sort of chip at what is your space of influence as a researcher, a higher ed researcher, or as a higher ed um, scholar, as a community activist, like you can be more targeted, right? Because you've done this work and now you're trying to see where can I begin? Because as you all know, it's overwhelming. You know, 2020, overwhelming right? So you have to, I think you have to choose little pieces so that you can stay excited and encouraged, you know, to continue to do the work.
1: Thank you for that. And I I want definitely to hear from Stephanie, but I I want to plant the seed for maybe somewhere in the conversation, it could show up. uh, But what you just said, actually, there is, Definitely the pre-work interrogation that needs to happen in anti-racist scholarship, teaching, service, whatever it might be, and the overall work or paradigm of work. Um, And then, like you said, then identify the sphere of influence that you might have and begin to chip away. So I love that you said that. And yet, I want to, at some point in this conversation, explore as a community here today how how do people? What your advice would be? Maybe we we go there. What's your advice? Because there's there's a spectrum of involvement where there's people who feel like, well, I need to learn more before I could get go. Like I can't do this work yet, and so they're on this bench for a really long time. Like that bench is super warm, and they're still sitting there yet. They have to start there, but when 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 to get off the bench and when to get in the court, right? Um, and at the same time, we have other people who do one workshop and then they're off, you know, to the races and it doesn't feel responsible. So I would love to hear your thoughts about what you share with your students about how to balance the learning and the integration and the self-work with the action and the responsibility of responsible action. I would love to hear that. Um, yeah, so I'm going to just turn it over. Uh, Stephanie, I would love to hear your your thoughts on what does anti-racist teaching uh, mean to you and what does it look like in your classroom?
4: So much yes to what Luis and Nicole were saying. Like, I truly appreciate and agree with so much of what they were saying to the point that I, I have minor neck pain from nodding and so much affirmation because it was really so, so um, incredible. Now, Back to your question about what does anti-racist teaching mean. One of the ways that I like to look at this is from the lens of, okay, well, what does racist teaching mean? And to me, this it can mean a lot of different things, right? But it includes promoting and allowing oppression and imbalances of power, particularly in to and especially to Nicole's point, right? Like one myself as an educator. Like truly you have to start with you first, right? Number two is what's the content and the messaging that I that I choose and I include? And number three is what are the, the physical, virtual and the perceived environments, which includes the spaces that I create and we talked about in um, student interaction and their discourse and the knowledge creation. So I'm thinking about, all right, that's where racist teaching can lie. So to flip that, like thinking about anti-racist teaching, that means I need to be active and intentional um, and really thinking about it in even a metacognitive way against that racist teaching. So you need to, as you said, look at yourself and make sure that you assess your privileges and the oppressions that you had. So that autobiography thing that you mentioned, Yes, so true and you got to start by giving yourself that assignment first right before you give it to anybody else. Um, And then. in, in looking at the places that you, I guess, benefit from as well, and how that contributes to all areas of your life and especially the classroom. And I think about that in ways that when I present myself in a space, how do I even present myself to a student? Am I presenting myself as equal? Am I presenting myself as someone above? Am I even valuing other people's opinions? That really does matter in the context of the classroom. And I think particularly in higher ed, students come in with a perception of what a classroom should be. what we said here, it's it's our job to make sure that they unlearn that, particularly if it's been a toxic oppressive and racist system from where they came from, right? And to the you point of
1: Oh, I'm yeah. sorry, I was just gonna say you you know, you really caught me on something there, which you know, I think is really interesting and insightful, which is that anti racist teaching is not only about what you're for. Right. So, you know, I'm imagining for liberation, but it's also what you're against, which is then racist teaching. And we can name a few things, but in a way, racist teaching is the norm. It's like the way traditional teaching happens for the most part, upholds and sustains white supremacy. So, most of our teaching practices that we've probably been exposed to in the classroom is racist in nature. Um, or has an underpinning of white supremacy. So then anti-racist teaching is asking yourself, how do I resist that? How do I do the opposite of that? Or not only that, how do I counter that? It sounds super like agentic. And so I'm just curious to hear about, do you share that with students? Any of you, Stephanie, Um, I'm curious about your thoughts, um, given that you've laid that out. do do any of you share this positioning, this philosophy, or this pedagogical framing with your students from the get? Like from the beginning of class, do they understand that this is going to be an anti-racist teaching course focused on STEM? And if so, how how do your students respond to that? Stephanie, what do you think? Yeah,
4: absolutely. I think bringing in the person and the humanity I think we've talked about this but like bringing that in from the beginning is so important because at least in my context I teach um what many would consider technical courses and so when they come into this class and they see the syllabus they're like all right I'm here to focus on the content that I'm learning and what I say to them is hold on hold on hold on before we get to that let me tell you who I am let me tell you my truth and let me tell you who What I believe in, right? And so I have no reservations in sharing from them. You know, in addition to my pronouns, of course, I share that. For example, I'm a daughter of immigrants from the Caribbean. I share that I identify as Afro Latina. I break down as all of what these things mean and make sure that I'm embodying what I what I hope for them to do, which is to not only know what your identities are, share what they are, and then respect others when they come to you as their whole selves. Because if I expect my, I try to show up as my whole self in a space, and if I expect my students to, then I need to set that from the beginning. And I think in the context, for example, this past semester we were online, it was a fully asynchronous virtual class, right? So how do you even do that in that space? Well, one of the methods I tried was through the discussion board. And so I'm having people talk through and I give them um to your point Nicole about the autobiography we talk about what are your positionalities or experiences like what do you come from culturally what are your identities and what are your points of privilege and oppression that you've had and they put that on the discussion board and then I told them you have to discuss and talk about it and it was so interesting in looking at in this case first year undergraduate students talking about that for possibly the first time in their lives. And that was so, so powerful to see because as they're engaging in that space, even behind the screen, you can see people over the course of the semester sharing more, talking more, and like learning more about themselves and others and how, wait, 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 my experience is not the same as other people's. And it's beautiful to see in real time, but we have to make sure that when they see that, that they value and that they they don't, um, that they celebrate the differences and not necessarily shun or outcast folks because that's not okay in, in the classroom. And we have to make sure that you set a a tolerance for, a zero tolerance for any sort of discrimination in that space and any sort of oppression. And that's where we start from the beginning. And so far that feedback has been good in terms of just setting it from the jump because it matters.
0: That's incredible. Thank you, Stephanie, for for sharing that. Prior to starting my doctoral studies, I worked at a community college and because it's a community serving institution, I worked with a lot of adults and it's very difficult to change behaviors and thoughts and biases and stuff like that. So I, I, w- I just wanna give a shout out to all of you for, for really bringing this into your classrooms and being vulnerable for your students. I think that's a beautiful way to teach and learn is by bringing yourself to the classroom and kind of exposing what you who you are, what your objectives are, and what the objectives are for the class, just a very clear, very, very optimistic as well. Um, so, just kudos to all of you for the amazing work um, that you're doing. Um, so, something Omar, that's,
3: can I say really quickly yeah. that I also think that it is a way to sort of separate, I think, the tear from the wheat. It's like if you have people who are not interested in doing this type of work. I feel like it gives them an opportunity to be honest with themselves, which if you can be honest with yourself and just say, this is not my agenda, I would respect you more than trying to do this work half ass or, you know, in ways that continues to reify, you know, these issues. So I just wanted to also say that.
0: So something something that's been congruent with, uh, with, with all of you is that you're, you focus on STEM and STEM education. So something I'm curious about is how... You incorporate an intersectionality lens in your anti-racist teaching within STEM, um, and uh, you know, as as I throw that question out there, um, I, I specifically um, want to highlight and mention for for Stephanie, you know, I I think you're in a really interesting position because you recently graduated, um, you were uh, recently a doctoral student, and now you're entering. You know, this, this space not probably not for the first time teaching but now in this kind of in this role. So I wonder if your doctoral studies and even prior to, to to your doctoral experience helps shape the way that you um, incorporate intersectionality in your anti racist teaching so um, maybe could we start with uh, Luis Could you, could you kick us off in this next question.
2: definitely. So I think part of, um, and this relates a little bit to some of the conversation that I shared before about norms, but I'm thinking about some of my research in um, calculus classrooms. Um, And so recently I've been doing some work um, looking at racialized and gendered aspects of calculus instruction. And in a recent piece in cognition and instruction, um, we have a participant who self identifies as a Latina, and she was talking about um, authority in the classroom. And so, you know, when we think about calculus classroom spaces, traditionally there's a logic that um, the instructor holds all authority. And so, when you have to ask questions in the classroom space, even though an instructor might invite questions, there's a, already a racialized and gendered labor um, that exists in a classroom that hasn't deconstructed who's able to take up space, who can ask questions. And particularly for this participant, she talks about gendered cultural forms of socialization, of growing up in a Latino household and remembering that you always respect authority. So there's already this tension of that she's grappling with in this space where even though you might say in a classroom space, everybody can ask her, can ask a question, no question is invalid, there's already an intersectional tension, particularly for this participant, where she said, where she's thinking, if I ask a question, I feel like I'm being, I'm positioning myself as resisting authority, which actually goes against some of the ways that I've been socialized to engage in spaces, right? To maintain respect to, for, for, for authority, right? So this notion of respect. So um, I think for me that becomes a little bit of an, um, uh, an almost like a, an intersectional way of understanding anti-racist teaching specifically in in, in STEM classroom spaces where if we don't begin to kind of disrupt some of the ways that we begin to be socialized in different ways and understand how those different socialization processes are taking up in a space, we actually can perpetuate inequitable opportunities for students to ask questions, for students to participate in the space. So without having those critical conversations from the beginning, we actually reinforce white supremacist and patriarchal ways of engaging in these different spaces?
0: L- Luis, love, love, love your, your answer. And I'm, I'm curious to know in, in your research, um, it, it's something that you mentioned came to mind uh, from a book that I recently read uh, last semester called The Privileged Poor. Um, and, and they they talk about how students it's not that students don't have burning questions. It's not that students are not inquisitive, that they're not curious. But because of their upbringing, they may, and and also the relationship that they have with adults, that may influence their behavior in the classroom. And so, exactly like you said, it's just it it just it's it's a a negative perpetual cycle that just limits the opportunities of students. And talk about like persistence. You know, it's one thing to have community or or students at, at the community college or at the university level, but but will, how will how can they remain how can how can professors um just do do their part to to help uplift and support students while also engaging them and challenging their their just their ideas so I think it's it's I think it's wonderful that you're what you're doing for your classroom for your students and hopefully also building some momentum at at your institution as well to change that norm so uh yeah, love love the answer thank you
2: and I do think one thing um, Omar to, to respond to that is that we shouldn't only hold individual instructors responsible to do this work. We need departmental buy-in, right? So like, cause you know, what ends up happening sometimes is that we have a critically oriented faculty member who has to take on all of this load to do this pedagogically and guess what? The system does not reward it. So I think that what, what we have to think about is how do we get STEM departments who are oftentimes complicit in a lot of logics that actually perpetuate inequities that have, that exist before college. So I'm thinking about, so I think one of the questions is around um, the equity gap, um, particularly in higher education and STEM. And some of those inequities are have already started before college, right? And so for example, access to advanced placement calculus is an inequity. And so when students are expected to major in STEM, and departments are beholden to this idea of calculus as being the gatekeeper, as being the weed out course, if your instruction is not allowing for those inequities to be disrupted, that's where we get racialized and gendered and other forms of oppressive forms of representation in these disciplines, because we're not thinking about, well, how can the departments rethink how we're using calculus? We should stop using it as a way to be able to say, you are actually have the talent to become an engineer, right? And so we have to really rethink and disrupt the ways we think about courses like calculus that are so intimately tied to engineering, computer science, all of these other STEM disciplines because those are the courses along with developmental mathematics courses where we begin to see this reinforcement of inequities that exist in our education system before they even step a foot into higher education
1: that's just speaking some really um, serious truth there because those gateway classes, right? They they weed out the students, not because they don't have the potential, but, but because we're not willing to change the way they're taught so that everyone's potential can thrive. So every student that walks in the classroom and says, I want to pursue a degree in engineering or in mathematics or in chemistry, whatever it might be, has the real possibility to do so, right? So we have to take the responsibility that their failure reflects the fact that we're we're not meeting them where they are. It's not that they haven't met us where we are, you know? And so thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah,
4: and if I can jump in really quickly on that, I think that's so important. And I think right now it's an injustice to say that, for example, students who come in who may not have had a calculus class or or whatever opportunity that they had, we need to acknowledge that slapping the label of like imposter syndrome on them is a disservice to them and it hides the fact of what it really is and that's oppression. So when they come in and feel like they're inadequate and the students come in and, and compare themselves to their peers or are told by their teachers, oh, you should have learned this in high school or you should have, or this is so simple and that language is oppressive and they internalize that, oh, this this must be imposter syndrome. No, no, it's not your fault. That is the system. That is the educators. That is everything else failing them it's it's not you that is oppression
0: yeah i appreciate you identifying that but when i worked at the community college i i worked on on various stem initiatives um on campus which made me very excited to meet with all of you today you know but it's it's fascinating because there's a whole spectrum of areas in which just stem education needs to be improved you know areas for growth and i i was more on the program side so i developed partnerships with various um, companies and organizations in Arizona to provide, uh, you know, STEM workshops for specifically young ladies, which, you, you know, I, I think just in the STEM field, um, there's a huge discrepancy um, j- just in terms of like programming and, and how, again, going back to that precedence, the way that young women are being almost forced out of STEM. Like I've, 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 I've come across um, some research that states that uh, some narratives of, of young ladies that participate in internships, STEM internships, and they're delegated more um, like note-taking tasks. You know, again, going to back to those gendered norms as opposed to actually getting into the hands-on um, activities of, of STEM research. So it's 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 fascinating. Again, going back to that spectrum, it's it's in the classroom, it's at institutions, in individual departments. Within organizations, you know, it's just it's it's fascinating the 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 work that needs to be done, Um, and and the fascinating work that is being done. You know, it seems like there's some pretty revolutionary practices that all of you are incorporating. So um, that that makes me very hopeful. Despite kind of like the the disgruntling data that I come across on a day to day basis, it's wonderful that 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 people are engaging in some very meaningful work. Um, Nicole, we haven't heard from you yet. I'm I'm really curious to to hear about you know, how you incorporate inter- the intersectionality lens in your anti-racist teaching practices.
3: Um, well, I've been over here just enjoying listening to Stephanie, and look, all of us actually have these conversations. The first thing I'd like to comment about, actually, where you were going, Omar, is that I've, I have a paper um, under review in which I analyzed all NSF grants that were awarded for STEM, you know, supporting Black women and girls in particular, and the bottom line of the story is that the majority of the um, programs that were funded, the level of ch- lever of change was at the micro or meso level. Okay, so it was programming, or it was about like we got to get Black girls more motivated. And less than, I don't know, um, I think there were 36 studies, and I I think it was like around five that were actually at the macro level, which is where, you know, Dr. Leva's work is pushing hard structures, um, ideologies, um, you know, trying to change those things. And so my whole argument in that paper is that we're funding the wrong thing. It's like, It's not to say that those things around programming aren't helpful, but until we get at these ideologies and structures, we're gonna continue to sort of see the same thing. Like I'm just convinced of that because you can do all the programming you wanna do. If you still have racist and sexist, uh, homophobic, whatever math and science faculty, um, having power and teaching in these ways, and in interacting with students in these ways, you know, you're not going to change anything because they are the ones that are making decisions about who's getting into the graduate programs, who's who am I going to do a conference uh, uh, a conference with, who am I going to write with, right? They're making all of these very powerful decisions that can affect you know black and brown folks um, you know trajectories. So I wanted to say that. The second thing is, I teach all of my classes. I'm going to engage. I'm going to engage intersectionality. So um, I have a research group that I actually teach called intersectionality. Um, and in that research group, I attract not just people from STEM, but I attract people from across the street in the Divinity School. Like everyone is trying to engage and understand intersectionality and the power that it has to help us understand oppression, power, privilege, right? Um, I teach a foundations class for the teacher ed program called the Philosophical, Social and Political Context. There's an entire week just on intersectionality. In addition to me weaving it in during our conversations and lectures and assignments and things like that. Um, And then I have a class called Discourse in STEM Classrooms. So there again, you know, I'm engaging students in, in trying to think intersectionally, right, in trying to understand what does it mean to explain your mathematical thinking for, you know, a Black girl, right? What does that look like? How is that different from an immigrant Black girl, right, who maybe has language Um, you know, issues or situations coming to the table. So I incorporated, you know, because I've learned and I'm still learning, it's just the lens. You have to think intersectionally because there's no monolithic Black, there's no monolithic Latinx student, right? And there's so many other ways that we can slice it through context as well as um, identities, right? And so, um, yeah, that's just the way that I do. And that's the way that I teach. And it doesn't even matter whether the class is STEM or not. That's just how I approach
1: my teaching. I appreciate that, Nicole. And, you know. It made First, to their first comment about, you know, we're funding the wrong thing, it, it reminded me, there's a, a recent article I published with Jillian Knives actually on first generation college students. We did a systematic literature review, so it reminded me of the work you're saying that you have on the review, looking at how first generation college students are conceptualized and how they're studied. And what does that tell us about what we know about first generations as academic learners? And um, one thing that we found was that the majority of articles that focus on first-generation students as academic learners have a deficit view of first-generation college students. Or the intervention is, even if they have an asset-based view, like they really believe in their capacity to do more, the interventions are meant to be need helping students. Mediate the situation or navigate the existing oppressive environment and it isn't actually changing the environment itself. So again, we're trying to fix the student the the problem is there and the student has the responsibility to learn how to navigate it. But actually our research isn't moving the needle about how institutions need to change the burden continues to be placed on students. So I really appreciate your, your point about that and And then you mentioned um, the various courses and you landed with a great point about, it doesn't matter what I'm teaching, I'm teaching with this lens and it's happening. What I'm curious about is, well, two things. How do you think intersectionality when you do bring it to the teaching of STEM, how do you think it, it advanced STEM itself. Like how does teaching with an intersectional lens inside of STEM actually advance the discipline? Um, so I'm really curious to hear. I'm not going to call on anyone, but anyone who have a thought on that, um, I would love to hear what you think.
2: So, I mean, my response is the fact that inter- intersectional lenses and intersectional ways of theorizing are not commensurable with STEM because STEM in and it of itself is still reliant on a white canon form of thought right? And so I think that ends it, I mean, this is why we see, for example, you know, in our field in mathematics education, intersectionality only in recent times, I don't think it's still brought to the middle or to the table. I still really do think that we're still at the margins. But if you think about it historically in our field, we've made some progress, but that's a manifestation of the historicizing of our field that has been very much reliant on white ways of thinking about understanding children and understanding learners based on achievement. But over the years, we've begun to understand that it really is about power and it is about identity, which are really cornerstones to what intersectional theorizing is. But intersectional theorizing is not commensurable with the ways that we've traditionally understood mathematics or more broadly, how we've understood STEM disciplines. So I think in us doing this work collectively As pedagogues, I think that for us, we are actually beginning to push back on the boundaries that are so violent in STEM disciplines that actually respond back to notions of standpoint theory and speaking our truths through intersectional theorizing that say that's not mathematical knowledge, that's not engineering knowledge, to the point that we have to begin to do this work to be able to say us bringing in black and brown ways of knowing and understanding the world are actually forms of engineering, are actually forms of mathematics. So we have to do this work to be able to change the disciplines because if we say if we wait for the disciplines, the disciplines will not save us.
1: You hit it on the nail. You reminded me of, I'm not sure if you have you ever read um the work of Rosel Gutierrez. Uh, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so that's
4: just cool. like <laughs>
1: Yes, yeah. And we'll we'll make sure to note all of these references and resources um, you know, underneath the podcast, so our listeners can be able to tap into that knowledge. But yeah, she is a um she's a mentor of mine too, even though she doesn't know it. <laughs> but through her work, she's a, one of my scholarly mentors. I just feel like we gotta name it. And it's just so powerful to imagine that. Well, two things. One is that imagining all of the knowledge that's already in our communities of color around math and science you know like that to me is so inspiring and beautiful and in the other side how sad that our field i think would have been even further like stem would have been even further had we harnessed and brought that type of indigenous ways of knowing black and brown ways of knowing into stem like we win-win um but I really appreciate Luis what you what you're saying there I just you made me think about her work um but one of the things that Omar and I are always talking about is um how did you get to learn to teach in this way how did you get here and and if you could speak to that and maybe share a piece of advice for someone else who's looking to 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 improve their own teaching? Who really wants to engage in anti-racist teaching? what, What advice might you offer them?
4: I can jump in. So to answer the first question of how did I get here? And I think there's quite a few different things that I can think about and remember. But I know um, as an undergrad, myself and a couple other students were told you're not going to make it in engineering and you should switch your major. And I think those stories and those experiences really do need to be lifted and highlighted because it's not okay to say that to someone and really try to change the trajectory of their life just because you perceive them to not belong in a space. And what they're doing is trying to validate what it means to be an engineer or what it means to be someone in STEM. And that's trying to validate the people. And the other thing to think about that's affected me is also what does it mean for for data to be valid. So in, in STEM, you look at numbers, you look at data, you glorify the data and said it's not true unless the data supports it. But I remember wanting to do a a mixed methods research study and really wanting to elevate the the experiences of black and latinx women who are in that space but i was told there weren't enough of those people with those identities in the population to be able to disaggregate it and so i was told that it was just going to be statistically insignificant and that really hurt because that means, okay, so does, am I then statistically insignificant in every space that I'm in? And that really framed what I do now because that shows how important intersectionality is. Because if you don't value the the people behind the numbers, then what are you doing?
3: Right on, that is a title. That's the title of a paper, Stephanie. We'll be looking for you to write That's that paper. That's right, I'm like, when is that coming out, Stephanie? Um, I also, um, you know, when Luis and I were, you know, kind of talking about these questions, definitely begin with the lived experience. So I'm writing my solo book project right now called um, Mathematizing Feminism. And there's a long part of after the colon, Uh, but basically it's a, a synthesis of the work that I have learned about black girls, mathematics teaching and learning identities intersectionality, all of those wonderful things um, discussed in like big areas. So like assessment and policy and pedagogy and those kinds of things. Well, I opened that book with my own story of being a third grader and raising my hand in class and my teacher not calling on me. However, I wasn't aware of that. And my mom was standing outside one day and watched and when the class was over, essentially came in and you know accused the teacher of being a racist. I don't know if she was a racist or not, but that was what my mom felt. And of course, you know, I got moved into a different class, and then you know it was a honors class or whatever you would call it back then. And of course, the story is that I excelled, right? But the meat and the um, the thing that makes me committed is that I felt the power of advocacy and change, right? So that really drives a lot of why I am so dedicated to putting out research and public scholarship that helps the world understand who black girls and women are in mathematics spaces. What, how does the space change when we show up, right? Um, and we're not doing that and understanding that with old theories, like I said in the chat, that have been developed off of years of observing white kids, right? Um, and so the theorization that has to happen at those intersections is the work that I've been trying to do. And I'm committed to doing that work um, because I know that Black girls need to be advocated for, nurtured, cared, um, made visible, um, affirmed, all of those things. And mathematics is, the, is, a, is a discipline where that work really needs to happen um, because it's definitely racialized, it's gendered, Dr. Uh, Leva's work has showed us it's sex, you know, issues of sexuality show up in that space. So um, that's why I do this work, and that's how I have, you know, have sort of come to this work. And it is work that I'm proud. It is a mandate on my life. I'm not playing any games. So I'm here to do this work until I'm placed in the
1: grave. That is a piece, right? That's a title of piece, or maybe as a chapter, a mandate. You know, this is a mandate um, that you're putting for yourself, but also it's a call to action to other people. Like the work is urgent. There's urgency for change, and you know, you something you said about your story about being in third grade made me recall like a memory. I was actually uh, uh, yesterday morning I was doing some yoga, and for whatever reason, this is what showed up. I. I thought about myself in first year of college. And, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, when I started college, I was not college ready or what people call college ready, college prepared. I was all in what back then was called remedial courses, you know, in English and in math. And um, if it wasn't for the program that gave me a chance to go to college, I wouldn't be here. And I'm thinking, tag, look, this kid from Jersey City, (laughs) you know, low income, first gen, you know, everything. And I'm teaching now other people. Like I'm, I'm now professing and moving the field, but that's not because there's something uniquely special about me, you know, I, I, I got some opportunities, but my brothers and sisters in my community had the same talent and skills, you know, and we fail, we fail, higher ed fails when we keep closing the door on people because they don't come in the way we want them to be, you know, and I'm, I think it was because I was reading all this first gen literature and I was thinking, we can't keep wanting the other students, we need to want the ones that are in our classroom. And, and teach them. So I don't know what it was about what you just said, just rose that up for me, but I just wanted to name that. Um, in any case, going back to 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 the question of how did you get here and, and what advice might you give? Luis, what are your thoughts on that?
2: So I really, I, I love that you took us to program because that's basically the hardest to what inspired the research that I do. And so I have a big heart For student affairs when I was at Rutgers my entire time I was involved in different programs like upward bound I was. um, Working with the living learning communities that were funded by the National Science Foundation, and I think it was all of that work, the reason why I went to that work was because when I got to college, I wanted to you know pursue a stem major broadly. Um, And you know when I was in my classes, I noticed that a lot of my classes were really focused on the academics. And so I started to get really motivated to do work in living learning communities in mentoring initiatives and in in college student development work broadly uh, for seven years. And that was what really brought me to to frame the work that I do around trying to bring light to the fact that when we engage in STEM and higher education, it is an academic and social endeavor. Um, And when we really begin to respect the social piece, we have to understand it in a nuanced way. And that's what brought me to intersectionality. Um, And so I still remember having a conversation with Dr. Abelia Hernandez, who was one of my informal mentors at Rutgers, who basically introduced me in an office hour conversation. And that conversation with Abelia was a pure contrast to conversations in office hours and STEM spaces. And, she, and through that conversation, I started to dig, dig, dig. I started to read bell hooks, I started to dig into Crenshaw. And it almost kind of illuminated a sense of understanding of the broader structures and ideologies of STEM higher education. And that's what brought me to come into this work, right? And as I do this, constantly doing the self work, I recognize that I hold privilege as a man coming into this work, right? So that's how bell hooks chapter around comrades in the struggle helped me to understand how do I position myself as being a man identified individual? How can I contribute to this work, right? And so I think that in much the same way that Dr. Joseph was talking about when you're a teacher in this classroom, you have to do this pre-work. For me as a researcher and for me as an instructor, I have to do my own pre-work to understand the ways that I position myself in society and position myself in relation to the work to really interrogate those ideologies to do work, to make a difference in, in the scholarship that I engage in.
1: Yeah, no. Just want to thank, uh, thank you, Dr. Santos, Dr. Soso, Dr. Leva, for your words of wisdom today. For your honesty. For um, just really sharing practical strategies, but also calling on the, calling out the institutional responsibility that's required for us to really see change in the field. You know, in order for. Um, teaching, anti-racist teaching to really be possible, it can't be in the burden of only the the faculty. You know, the institution has to take responsibility for moving and supporting the work as well. So thank you to the three of you. I really appreciate the work you're doing as scholars, as faculty members, as mentors, as as advisors. Um, uh, I think that you're inspiring and the field is better um, because you're in it. So thank you for your time.
0: In our next episode, we will be speaking with Dr. Frank Tuitt from the University of Connecticut and Dr. Lori Patton Davis from Ohio State University, who will discuss critical race theory and intersectionality in anti-racist teaching. Be on the lookout for the episode, which will drop on Wednesday, March 10th. Before we close out, we want to express our appreciation to our guests, Dr. Santos, Dr. Joseph, and Dr. Leyva. And also thank our colleagues at the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at the University of Connecticut for all their support and assistance with this podcast, because it takes a village and it takes heart.